0: afternoon gang we'll get started here so last class we finished off talking about degrees of freedom and the problem that our brains would have uh, if we had to resolve a problem every time because there's just an infinite number of ways of doing things so we're going to finish off this degrees of freedom portion and then I'm going to skip ahead about four or five pages in the notes and then come back the reason I want to skip ahead is so you can complete the lab assignment for this week with some knowledge of what we're talking about. So last class we talked about ways in which we can solve the degrees of freedom problem. The first one we talked about was this notion of efficiency. right? And so I asked you to touch your nose, and we all did it in a very efficient manner. And then we talked about synergies, where things work together. So we were rubbing our heads, patting our stomachs, but that didn't work very well and we ended up rubbing both or patting both. The final one of these methods that our brains deal with this degrees of freedom problem is through mechanics. And mechanics tells us that our bodies have kind of normal positions. So when I'm standing here in front of you, I generally stand with my feet together, you know, a little less than shoulder width apart, and I'm balanced and my arms are not out at weird angles. They're just kind of by my side. So, how does that help us? Well, imagine me walking. I'm taking a step and every time I take a step what I have to do is say, okay, right leg, I want the muscles to contract, swing this leg forward, then come up and swing past and fall down. Okay, left leg, contract, swing, etc. I'd never get anywhere. What my brain does is it relies and uses gravity and says, "Okay, when my leg is here, if I lift it up a bit, what's it automatically going to do? Well, gravity is going to cause my leg to swing forward. So I don't have to monitor what's going on. I just let it go. And with practice, you become skilled walkers. And so we've reduced the degrees of freedom as a result of the elastic properties that exist in our muscles. We don't have to think about every action we do all the time. So this degrees of freedom problem, let's have a look at it with respect to drivers who are considered high risk. These are drivers who are driving too fast, who are tailgating, lane change is unsafe, maybe even drinking and driving. And so what they've been able to do They've designed systems called Intelligent Transportation Systems, ITS. And these are devices that can be hooked up to vehicles to decrease the degrees of freedom for the driver. So a driver who's speeding, if you drive really quickly, the amount of information that you have to process is ridiculous. If you slow down, now you're able to process the information at a proper rate. So What these devices can do is they can make it so your car can't speed. Whatever the posted speed limit is, that's the maximum speed your car can do. Slowing down these people is reducing the degrees of freedom. For people who are tailgaters, close following drivers, there are devices now built into vehicles that prevent you from getting too close to the vehicle in front of you. In uh, adaptive cruise control, you set your cruise control on your car, it won't let you get close to the car ahead of you. It'll slow you down based on the speed of the vehicles around you. Again, reducing degrees of freedom. It's something you don't have to worry about. Abrupt lane changes, people who shift lanes. Now, many of the new vehicles have uh, lane departure warnings, it's called. So, if you are driving you know, on a multi-lane road, and you drift out of your lane, all of a sudden the steering wheel vibrates and it pulls you back into your lane. Okay? So you can't change lanes unless you do a proper signal and then, then you're able to make your lane change. Impaired drivers, well, we can force them to stop drinking by putting a breathalyzer right on the, in the car. and so. Before you start the car, you have to do a, you know, you blow into the uh, device, and if it registers any alcohol at all, the car will not start. Some of you are thinking, oh yeah, I just get my friend to blow in it, right? But it senses your saliva or DNA or something, and it won't let somebody else do the blowing into the breathalyzer. So the bottom line here is, if you decrease the degrees of freedom, You end up with more efficiency when people are driving. More efficiency means less accidents, fewer uh, speeding tickets, and those sorts of things. All right, what I want to do, I'm going to jump ahead in your notes to page 126. Because the material I want to cover, I'm not sure I will get to by the end of the lecture, and it's helpful for those of you who are doing the lab assignment this week. All right? So, we're talking about how do we measure performance. And let's pretend I have a task. My task is to roll a ball and make it stop where that arrow is. Or, if you want to think of it this way, see this chalk brush that I have? My job is to slide it so that it stops right there, right? So I push it, and it stops right there, okay? I practice that an awful lot to make that happen, just so. So I'm going to do this. You have one slide of this. It's not worth it to print eight slides of what you're going to see. All right, so here's the first shot. I'm going to roll it along. Whoa, a little bit too far. Now, notice that I have a plus value here. It went 10 units too far, beyond the target. Could be millimeters, centimeters, mile, it doesn't matter. I get my second ball ready. Now, I'm not real stupid. I went, hmm, I threw that a little bit too far, so I'm not going to throw it quite as hard. And I roll this one, ooh, a little bit short. Notice the negative sign. I'm before the target, not far enough yet. All right, let's take the third shot. I line my third shot up. I give it a go. Eh, a little bit too far. I'm going to take my fourth shot, and there we are. So those, that's what you now have in your notes as the slide, right? Just understand that I've taken four shots. There are my scores. How did I do? Am I a good performer? lousy performer? How did I do? Well, we're going to look at ways you can measure this performance. We're going to talk about four different error measures. My scores from the previous slide, you saw them already, are 10, 4, minus 1, and minus 5. The order doesn't matter, just whether they're positive or negative. So the first error measure that we will talk about is, I hate this, you lose the mouth, there we go. Constant error, CE. It is simply the average of your scores. CE is the average of your scores. So I take my four scores and I add them up. Remember when you add a negative it's like subtracting? So I add these numbers together, I get eight, I divide it by four to calculate the average, and my average score is two. In this case we're going to say centimeters. I was two centimeters. Well, what does two centimeters mean? Well, on average, oops, sorry. here we are. On average, my shots were two centimeters past the target. On average, our shots were two centimeters past the target. Well, Average is kind of an okay measure. You guys always ask about it after an exam. What was the average on quiz one? What was the average on quiz two? But you know, of course, that average is not a very good measurement. Suppose, for example, I came into class and I said, the class is four of you, and I said, well, the average was 50. And you go, that's okay, not great. But what you don't know is that two people got a score of 100, And two people got a score of zero. What is the average? Fifty. Does the average actually tell you how they did? Not really. Two people aced it and two people bonded. So is there another measure that we can use that describes how spread out the scores are? Well, there is. From last term in stats, you learned something called standard deviation. And I'm sure because you learned, you can all tell me what the definition of standard deviation is. Right? It's where 68% of your scores fall. Standard deviation tells you where 68% of your scores fall. So if we take our raw scores and we calculate standard deviation for this set of data, we get a, a VE, so VE is simply standard deviation, We get a VE score of 5.6. Huh, 5.6, what is that telling us? Well, 68% of your scores fall in the range of plus or minus 5.6. So let's look at that now. Here it is. So 68% of your scores are going to fall in this range. Or, more accurately, would be this range on the target. That's where 68% of your scores fall. Oh, so now I know, on average, you shoot past the target. I know how spread out your scores are. C-E-V-E, give me some good information. But you gave me two numbers. Is there not some way you can just give me one number? Like, I hate two numbers, I just want one number. Yeah, there is, and that one number Is called E, sometimes referred to as total variability, and it's a combination of CE and VE. So we take CE and we use both CE and VE in the following manner. Quite simple, really. You take the average of your scores, which is CE, you square it, You take your standard deviation, or your variable error, you square that, you add the two numbers together, and then you take the square root. Not particularly difficult to do. In this data, you get a value of 5.9. Okay. What does that mean? Well, I cannot give you an illustration like I did for the first two measurements. But what you do need to understand Is that the lower this E-score is, the better. A low E-score is a good thing. How would you get a low E-score? Well, what is it made up of? CE and VE. You will get a low E-score if both of these numbers are small. If one of them is big and one is small, your E-score is going to get bigger and bigger. So a low E means a good performance. Low E is a good performance. Now, there's one other error measure that is sometimes used, and that is referred to as absolute error. Let's pretend your subject shot four times, they got two scores of 100, and they had two scores of minus 100. What's your CE, or average score, going to be there? Zero, right? You add those up, divide by four, you get zero. Hmm. That means you're really, really good. If you get a, a CE of zero, you're really good. You never miss the target. But in fact, you are way away from the target every time. So CE doesn't work in this case. So what can we do? Well, what we can do is this error measure called AE, which ignores the plus and minus sign. So if you ignore the plus and minus sign in this calculation, what do you end up with? Well, you get 400 divided by 4, you get 100 is now the value of AE. Is that a good representation of how you've done? Sure it is, because 100... Every one of my shots I was about a hundred units away from the target twice. I was past it by a hundred Twice I was short of the target by a hundred So there are situations when AE is a better score than using CE Depending whether you have positive negative scores combination of them, etc generally speaking The score that is best used, and the one you're working with in the lab this week, is E, because it's a combination combination of CE and and VE. So generally speaking, the E value is the one that's used, not AE. Let's apply this now. Let's take a situation. You've just been appointed National or Olympic team coach for the Canadian dart throwing team. And there are four players who've shown up for tryouts. And you've been asked to rank these performers in terms of best, second best, third best, etc. So let's number these just so we all are talking about the same performer. So this is performer number one, two, this is three, and this obviously would be number four. Who's the best performer? I think you would all say number two, right? Because they're all around the target, they're fairly close together. Okay. Calculate the CE and the VE for these, this performer. Now, you don't actually have numbers to work with, but tell me, would the CE and the VE be big, would they be small? Let's look at it individually. What is CE? What was it? The average, right? So let's look at performer number two. Let's figure out what their average would be. This score and this score are kind of going to cancel each other out, right? It's like adding 10 and minus 10. You're going to get zero. And these two scores are going to cancel each other out. So this person would have a very small CE value. It's very small. What about their VE value? What is variable error? Standard deviation, the spread of the scores. How spread out are these scores? Not at all. VE would also be small. Now you can do that for each one of these. Let's say who is the worst performer here? you only got three others to guess from. Who's the worst performer? Number one, I would say, is the, the worst. These, this, fo- this person is really hurting. Their shots are spread out all over the place, and they're not near the target. So their CE is going to be large. What about their variable error? it also will be large. The scores are spread out. We can do that for the other two. Who would you choose as number two, the second best performer? Three or four? Who's the, next be- who's the second best performer? I'm going to say four. Why? Because four is very, very consistent. Every shot is in the same spot, but they just have to adjust one little thing. You change one thing and now they're hitting the target all the time. This performer is not accurate and not consistent. Every shot is different. So if we were to look at it from CE and BE perspectives, this is what you get. You want big CEs, little CEs. The best performer they both were small. That's a good thing. The worst performer, they both were large. And if you have a choice, you want a small VE. You want someone who's consistent, then you can adjust or modify them. Subject number two, or pardon me, three, we have to first of all make them consistent, then we need to work about accuracy. Okay. So there's four error measures, you're using them in the lab this week to answer the assignment. We've jumped ahead and now we're going to jump back to where we were in the notes previously and carry on. Alright, so now we go back, I don't know what page number this is, just Flip back about four pages to where we were before we left off. Long-term learning. Based on what I talked about last class, you find it? I, what page is it? Mine is uh, from oh, Yours is last year. It doesn't count. 117. 117. There we go. All right. Based on that cigar rolling experiment we looked at last class, okay? learning goes on indefinitely. You just keep improving. Remember there was a million trials and then 10 million practices? None of you, even though some of you might be quite skilled in an activity, have ever done a million repetitions of something. So you can continue to improve. If it does stop, Chances are it's because you've reached a plateau and if you go back to the causes of a plateau it's things like perhaps poor strategy You got to use all your fingers when you're typing or maybe you're not physically strong enough You have to get stronger or maybe you're not motivated enough those sorts of things, but theoretically you can continue to improve If we were to describe what people look like when they learn you would find individual differences between one person and the next. So, for example, we've got two figures on the screen here. Let's just split them this way. This is what happens as a result of practice. How do I know it's practice? Well, because the x-axis says trials. The number of practice trials you've had. So let's look at our two subjects, A and B. They started at the same level of performance. When they started, they both had the same score. When they started, same amount of time necessary to complete the task. They practiced a whole bunch, and you measured them as they were practicing. Or maybe you only measured them once at the very end. B, subject B, is faster than subject A. Subject B is faster than subject A. If they started at the same spot and subject B is now faster, who learns faster? Subject B must be the faster learner. Now, if you were in the lab and you analyzed the data, what you probably would have is the slope for for subject A. And the slope for subject B. The person with the steeper slope learns faster. The steeper slope is learning at a faster rate. Makes sense, right? The roof is steeper and for subject B, so subject B learns at a faster rate. Here's one that's one example you can use to compare performers. Let's look at another example. Here, subject A and B started at different levels. They finished at different levels. Who learns faster? Because the lines are parallel, or the slopes are the same, they're learning at the same rate. Subject B was better to begin with, and remained better, but they learned at the same rate. So in the lab, in the next couple weeks, you may be looking at this kind of thing as well, where you plot regression lines and you either look at the rate of learning or you look at other rates as well. All right, let's talk about performance now. We've spent a little bit of time talking about learning. We've looked at, we will be looking at how you measure performance. So the first thing to keep in mind, performance and learning are different things. They are not the same thing. That's why we have this thing, skilled performance and motor learning is the name of the course. Learning and performance are different things. So let's illustrate this. Our dart throwing task again. Trying to hit the bullseye. When you start, you're lousy. Let's call this point A. With practice, you get better. Let's call this next one point B. And you practice some more, and you end up down here. Let's call this point C. Any point along that curve could be considered your level of performance at that moment. Anywhere. I could put A, B, C, D's, anything, anywhere along that curve is your performance at that moment. The change or the difference from your performance at point A to your performance at point B would be called the learning, right? That's how much you learned, or from A to C, that's how much you learned, okay? So the change is the amount that you've learned. Have you ever had somebody who you've taken a photograph of, you show them the picture, and they go, that's not what I look like, that's not me. You go, well, wait a minute, yes, it is. That's what you look like at that instant. We as faculty hear it all the time. The mark on quiz one doesn't reflect what I know. Wait a minute, at that moment, just like the photograph, that's what you know. That's what you were able to do as a performance. That's where you were at. So any point along this curve is your performance. So performance is directly observable. Learning is this thing we've talked about previously, a relatively permanent improvement. You can't see learning. You can measure or infer it, but you can't see it. Performance you can observe. I watch you hit a ball. I watch you throw a basket in, or a ball into the basket. Right? Can observe performance. Learning? No. You have to measure over time. If you're going to understand how we learn motor skills, how we learn to do things, you have to measure performance. You've got to be able to measure. Why do you say this person is skilled and that person is not as skilled? Answer is because we've been able to measure it. And we can analyze or measure performance in two ways. The first one is through outcome and the second is through production. So how do I measure or what is outcome? Outcome is looking at a criteria and saying, did you meet that criteria? So my job was to roll the chalk eraser and make it stop at this arrow. Did I meet that criteria? My job is to put the ball in the hoop. Did I meet that criteria? Production is how did you produce the activity? What did you do? to get the outcome. So how were you holding your arm when you were taking the foul shot? How fast did you move your wrist so that the ball started to spin as it went forward? So if we look at shooting a rifle in the Olympics, you know that event called uh, biathlon, which is in the Winter Olympics coming up? They cross-country ski for like three kilometers, and then they start shooting at targets, and then they ski some more and shoot at targets. Amazing event. Because when you're cross-country skiing, what do you think happens to your heart rate? It goes through the roof, right? It's like 200 beats a minute. When you shoot a rifle, skilled rifle shooters, they learn to shoot the rifle between the beats of your heart. Because when your heart beats, blood goes rushing through the body and it moves slightly. So you have to get your heart rate under control. So getting your heart rate under control and how you hold the rifle is about production. How did you do it? Whether or not you hit the target is the outcome, okay? So I'm illustrating that here in the next two slides. This is outcome. Where did the bullet, where did the arrow, where did the dart hit the target? Did the ball go in the hoop? That's outcome. Production is this. How are you holding the rifle? What is the angle of your elbow? How wide are your feet apart? How much pressure are you pulling on the trigger as you squeeze it gently? All of those things are involved with production. Now sometimes, in some things, production and outcome are synonymous. Can you believe that there are actually events in the Olympics where what you look like as you're doing it matter? Like, does it matter when Usain Bolt runs 100 meters in 9.3 seconds or whatever he is? Does it matter what he looks like? You know, if his tongue's hanging out or his hair is flying around, it doesn't matter. But there are events where what you look like as you're doing it matters. All of those judging events, figure skating, synchronized swimming, diving, gymnastics, what you look like as you do the activity matters. So in other words, production and outcome. So when I do a double flip in the air, I better not have my tongue hanging out because I'll lose marks on the production scale of things. Okay? Now, in most activities that we as humans do, we measure outcome because it's easy. Did the ball go in the hoop? How long did it take you to run 100 meters? It's really easy to measure outcome. Production is difficult to measure. Although with computer technology uh, improving and improving, it's going to become easier and easier to, to analyze production. But right now, primarily, we measure outcome. But it's actually really, really important to measure production because production controls outcome. So let's take a, a child learning to play basketball. Job is to get the ball in the hoop. If the coach doesn't care about production, the child may shoot the ball like this. It's called the granny shot, right? Ball between your legs, you know, hoof it up there, and it goes in the hoop and the coach goes, way to go, great shot. What's gonna happen when this player gets to the NBA and tries to shoot a ball like this? actually when they get to about grade four, some other bully is going to go whack every time they try and shoot it. So how you produce the event or the activity does matter. You want to learn to do it right the first time. If you talk to any coach, they will tell you. It's much easier to teach a new skill than it is to correct a bad old one. And you should know that from any habit. If you have a bad habit, like maybe biting your fingernails or doing something else, and you want to change it, you know how hard it is to change a bad habit. Same in sport. Same in motor skills. Production matters. Do it right the first time. Learn it the proper way. So how do we assess production? I've said it's important. Well, human judgment is is one of the most common methods to use it. And folks, we get sucked in very badly here with human judgment. We believe that judges at the Olympics actually are superhuman. So I'm talking about those judged events again like figure skating, synchronized swimming, diving, gymnastics, etc., etc. They are telling you that a person is able to watch say a 3-minute figure skating routine and remember everything that's gone on and see everything that's gone on and at the end of three to four minutes go "Eh, yeah that was a 5.9 or that was a 5.3 what a pile of crap that is do you really believe you know that if I give you a seven-digit number and 10 seconds later give you another seven-digit number and 10 seconds later give you another another seven-digit number you won't remember many of those digits, and yet you think that a figure skating judge can watch a three and a half to four or five minute production and remember everything that's gone on? And then some students put up, but sir, they get to make notes. Oh. What did I just miss? Two triple sow cows and a double axel when I'm making notes. Do you really think your brain has the ability to remember and see all of that stuff? Not a chance. Oh, and now they've got this new event in the Olympics, in the Summer Olympics. Have you seen synchronized diving? Right? Two people. Now, we're going to talk about what you can see with your eyes. But I guarantee you, you cannot see two things at the same time. I can see you, or I can see you. There's no way I can see both of you. One eye looks at you, one eye looks at... Yeah, it doesn't work that way, folks. So these judges have you convinced. that they actually see what's going on? Biggest bull going, folks. It ain't true. Now, if you really want to know what's going on, you need video. Whether it's film or digital, it doesn't matter how you do it. And why does that help? You know when they play slow motion replays? And now you look and go... Yeah, okay, I get that. So human judgment works wonderful. Am I walking normally or not? Right? It's really easy to tell gross errors and simple or slow movements. But if you do something fast, you tell me how many times I put my hand behind my back? No. You can't remember, you can't see it. It's not possible. But if you just videotaped what I did, right now you could play it back, you could slow it down, you know exactly how many times I put my hand behind my back, and you'd be very good at removing the memory load. You don't have to remember it, it's all on film there, you just kind of replay it, yeah, okay, I got it. So that's how they should judge the Olympics. Get rid of the uniforms, get rid of the colors, just have the event happen, you slow it down, you have much more accurate scores. This is what you folks get used to, either have done or will be doing in biomechanics, Kin 3030 course that you're going to be taking. With the aid of high-speed film and computer analysis, you can tell where every body part, every limb is as you do motion. You can tell the speed at which your arm accelerates. Now think about this. If you want to become like the best player in a particular activity or sport, Why don't you film the best player in action, and then simply do what they do? Why do you want to have a coach saying, "Well, put your elbow a little bit higher, move your arm a little bit here? High-speed film, computer analysis, eventually will become very, very important to teach us motor skills. So, like this, if you want to be the top cross-country skier in the world, and this is what the top cross-country skier in the world does, then make your body, the center of gravity, do exactly this. And so you practice it. You've got a monitor there, and you're oh, okay, yeah, that's it. Yep, that's exactly it, right there. Now go on and do the next little piece. would be very helpful for learning. Another way we can assess production is using EMG, electromyograms. These are electrodes that are placed on the surface, the skin of your body, and it measures electrical activity. It tells when the muscles are beginning to fire, how long they fire for, etc. cetera. So all that stuff Professor Sergio talked about, action potentials being sent and signals being sent down, and then the muscle starts to contract, et cetera. So here is an example of EMGs. What we have are two people. In one case, they're on a broad surface. So you can see they have a nice flat board to stand on here. In the second case, they're on a narrow thing, and they have to balance. This is what their ankles and hip joints are doing to balance. If you would like to teach world-class balancing, measure the world-class balance people, and then have somebody else emulate it. It's pretty easy to kind of, okay, I get it, I understand how to do it. Here's another example. The top, we have experts in the blue lines here. And here's what beginners are doing. It's pretty obvious you're not doing the same thing. Change it. Experiment a little bit. Make the beginners behave like the experts. And over here on the right-hand side, we have expert and beginner's EMG activities being demonstrated. And you can see, they're different. Make the lines line up then you're going to be behaving like an expert. You can also measure uh, what's going on in the brain through EEGs, or fMRIs, which is Functional Magnetic Resonance Imaging, where you can measure what parts of the brain are getting blood flow. This is not very useful for uh, developing sporting activities It is useful for researchers trying to know what parts of the brain are involved in various activities, but you wouldn't be using much of this in uh, teaching motor skills. So next thing, how do we assess outcome? Well, outcome, we can measure response magnitude, that's one way. And what we're referring to is the absolute size. In other words, how many balls went in the hoop in basketball? How many pucks went in the net? How many laps did you swim in training? Those are examples of response magnitude, the size. One of the ways we measure, and it's a very common measurement in uh, motor learning areas, is to measure things called reaction time and response time. Now most people have a incorrect understanding of what reaction time is. Reaction time is the amount of time from when a stimulus first appears. So it might be a light going on, it might be a buzzer, it might be a smell, it might be a touch. When does that signal appear? Until you begin moving. Not until you end your movement, but you begin the movement, okay? So, reaction time, stimulus is presented, and then when do you start moving? Not the actual movement itself. What we can do is actually break reaction time down into two components, and that's called fractionated reaction time. In fractionated reaction time, we have something called premotor time, which is from the stimulus, so the light goes on, until there's some EMG activity in your muscle. No movement yet, just activity in the muscle, EMG activity. And the second part of it is motor time, from when the EMG starts until you begin movement. Right? Because reaction time is until movement starts. So motor time is until motor motor starts. So lots of words, but here it is in, in a picture. Here's the light going on. It's the go signal. Nothing happens in your muscles. There's no EMG activity. That is Premotor time. All of a sudden there's EMG activity. Premotor time stops and motor time begins. Motor time goes on until you start to move. And then until you complete the move is movement time. So reaction time is a combination of premotor time and motor time. Okay? So, signal happens, nothing goes on, then there's electrical activity, then you begin to move, and then movement is finished. So, when you hear of a goaltender in hockey, what an incredible save! That goaltender has incredible reaction time. In your mind, what you should say is, that person's never taken a course in motor learning. It's not reaction time that allowed the person to catch the puck. Maybe the person had very slow reaction time, but superhuman movement time. Or maybe they had incredible reaction time and slow movement time. You don't know what it is. You need to analyze it and break it down. What the color commentator should be saying is, great response time, or very fast response time. Because response time is a combination of reaction time and movement time. Right? So, reaction time has two parts. Premotor, which is before the electrical activity, and motor which is uh, electrical activity until movement. Movement time is from when you start moving until you finish moving. And then we have response time, total response time, is the combination of RT plus MT. So reaction time plus movement time is response time. So what you see on television when a goaltender makes a good save, is total response time. It's not reaction time, it's not movement time, it's the combination of those. So you tell me in this illustration here, is this good reaction time, good movement time, good response time, what is it? Alright, here we go. Bad reaction time, bad movement time, what's, what's wrong with this poor fellow? Clearly he didn't hear the whistle, the gun, whatever it is that fired. He lost the race by a long ways, obviously. All right. Um, The final method of assessing outcome is by looking at accuracy and error. And we, whoops, that's what we started talking about when I skipped all of those pages. We'll finish there. We'll take up this last slide and a half on Monday, right? So, we'll see you on Monday. Enjoy the snow on Friday, Saturday. It's supposed to get ugly weather. Put your snow tires on, drive carefully, whatever. We'll see you on Monday.